So thank you for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space, the audio literary salon. I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. We're joined by Jerry Gold. Jerry will be reading to us from and talking about paranoia and heartbreak, 15 years in a juvenile facility. Jerry, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So we're just going to dive right in. And I'm going to ask, can you please tell us a bit about the book? Well, this book, Paranoia and Heartbreak, is based on a journal. It's about three quarters of the journal I kept during the years I worked at a prison for children here in Washington State. So I say it took me 15 years to write it, but really I worked there 15 years and I was keeping a journal during that time. The purpose of the journal as I was writing it, I hadn't thought until much, until I was almost ready to retire about making a book out of it. It was mainly to relieve stress because it was a high-stress job. I had two ways of doing it, of relieving stress. One was by running, and one was by keeping this journal. And uh, the other thing was to help me figure out, by writing about it, what was going on. I find that by doing that, it, it helps me focus my thoughts. And it did. It did help me focus my thoughts. I, in getting ready for this program, I looked at the book. I hadn't looked at it in several years, well, three or four years. And I'm surprised at how far I, I got in my thinking. I did hit a dead end, though. <laughs> uh, the dead end was that I couldn't figure out why I was still there because well, the job was always stimulating. Sometimes it was unpleasant. Sometimes it was dangerous. Not often, but sometimes. And yet I stuck with it. And I couldn't figure out why I did that. And after a few years, I, f- I figured it was just, I was just so fascinated by the kids, by what I was seeing, what I was learning about the extremes of human experience. And that's as far as I got. Maybe a couple of years later, I'd find entries in my journal again, wondering again what I was doing there. And I always came back to the same thing. Toward the end of the book, is the same thing. I never got beyond that. I suppose I'd have to be psychoanalyzed to do that, but I'm really not interested in doing that. Wow, that's really fascinating. Could we hear from the book, please? Sure. I thought I'd start with when I started there. When I applied for work at Ash Meadow, I did not want a job. I had been on active duty for Desert Shield to build up the Desert Storm, the first American war in the Persian Gulf. And before that, I had spent three years with the Census Bureau, and now I wanted to collect unemployment for a while and do some writing. But my friend Dick Teal asked me what my plans were now that I was out of the Army again. And when I told him, he suggested I go out to Ash Meadow, where he worked, and apply. He thought I would like working there. I really wanted a few months to myself, but he said they wouldn't be hiring until April or May, and I'd be one of the first on their list if I applied now. This is in February. So I called. Personnel sent me an application, and I filled it out and mailed it back. Then someone named Carol Ripito called and asked me to come out for an interview. Afterward, I could not tell how the interview had gone, although Carol had said that she'd like to hire people who had lived outside the United States, who had experienced living in another culture. Still, I had no sense of what the job was about, other than that it had to do with managing kids who were locked up. Despite its appearance as a summer camp, Ash Meadow was a prison. Carol emphasized that. Ash Meadow was a prison. It was one of five prisons in Washington State that housed juveniles and the only one that had girls. Two of the institutions were work facilities under contract with the Department of Natural Resources to provide firefighters during the fire season and to plant trees and clear brush at other times of the year. Elk Grove and the Rivers, the other two facilities, provided schooling, counseling, vocational training, And in the case of Elk Grove, an eight-week rehabilitation program for kids with drug or alcohol problems. A year after I started, an agreement was made between these three institutions that Ash Meadow would house the younger boys 
and Elk Grove and the rivers would take the older ones. Kids could be transferred from one institution to another, depending on circumstances. If a younger boy is particularly assaultive, he could be moved to Elk Grove. If an older boy was significantly smaller than his peers or otherwise unable to defend himself, he could be transferred to Ash Meadow. For purposes of the Juvenile Rehabilitation Administration, or JRA, the agency that oversaw the state prisons for kids and group homes that received state money, a kid was a kid until he or she turned 21. Thus, a kid who was in prison at age 16 on a four-year sentence would serve all of it as a juvenile. On the other hand, a 16-year-old convicted as an adult would serve the first years of the sentence at the Rivers, the most secure of the juvenile facilities, then would be transferred to an adult prison to complete his term. The crimes kids committed to get to Ash Meadow were the same as those done by adult felons. Assault, robbery, car theft, burglary, drug dealing, rape and molestation, manslaughter and murder, kidnapping. Stan McAvoy at Swan Cottage, the units there were called cottages, at Swan Cottage told me that Ash Meadow once held a, a counterfeiter. Except for this boy, I heard of no other resident in for a white-collar crime. Almost all the kids we got came from poverty or near poverty. Their sentences ranged from 16 weeks for a fourth-degree assault to years for first- or second-degree murder, manslaughter, rape, or kidnapping. We also had kids in for as little as a week or two for parole violations. For the most part, those with longer sentences were easier to work with. They soon became thoughtful and introspective. Whereas the kids whose sentences were a few weeks or a few months tended to want only for time to pass quickly, those who had committed the more serious offenses came to accept that the institution was going to be their home, the place where they were going to spend their foreseeable lives. They learned to take school seriously, and they were made to look critically at their relationships with other people, including boyfriends and girlfriends and other members of their gang set, if they were in a gang. Some became cynical if they were not cynical when they came in. And I liked them for this, as did a number of other staff, for we were cynical too. Many of those who were in gangs were eventually disillusioned, for although the myth is that youth gangs take care of their own, in fact, they do not, not if their own are in prison. Gang kids, as a rule, did not receive mail from their homies, not because we intercepted the letters, as kids accused us of doing, but because there were none. The longer a kid's sentence, the more likely it was that his set would forget him. Religion was important to the kids and race and ethnicity. Most were Christian of one denomination or another. Some were Muslim. Occasionally, we'd get a Jew. More often, we'd get a Satanist. Most who claimed Satanic beliefs did it to needle staff or get a reaction from other kids. But once I had a boy in my case who really came from a family of Satanists, and there were others I heard about, particular parts of Washington seemed to produce them. And our neo-Nazis came from one part of the state, Spokane and its surroundings, but no other. There was sometimes tension between blacks and whites, and more often between black kids and Hispanic kids. This tension rarely took a violent form, perhaps because staff were alert to it and quick to suppress any threat of violence. The older the kids, the more likely it was that these tensions would exist, or at least would surface to where staff were able to see indications of them. Our expectations, the institution's expectations for these kids, were that they would learn to be like us, share our values, get respectable jobs, and avoid illegal drugs, all but marijuana at least. If they could not or would not become like us, our expectation was that they would remain criminals, perhaps spending the greater part of their lives in prison. The values and aspirations we espoused were rooted in our own beliefs. A person should show deference to authority, should want to better himself through legitimate work, should meet his obligations to his family. Yet we ourselves, we counseling staff, tended to be anti-authoritarian. We were often contemptuous of those institutions as officers we encouraged the kids to obey, 
who are as often divorced as other Americans and as often resented paying child support or resisted paying it. In short, our models, by and large, were not models we lived up to. They were sometimes impossible to live up to. Yet we promoted them as offering the only path to well-being and economic and emotional stability. Why don't I stop there for now? This is so much there. Can I ask you, when did you decide that it was going to go from a diary that you kept to a published, you know, to a book that you gave, not just for yourself, but for all of us? Because I don't know, just listening to these first few pages, I'm thinking I'm learning so much, but I'm just curious about for you, when did you decide that, you know what, more people need to read this? Well, I was working on another book. I've been a writer for most of my life. I have I've never made enough money out of to uh, to do only that. <laughs> so I was working on another book and I was doing some interviews and I was in New York interviewing an independent press publisher. There used to be a, a press called Four Walls, Eight Windows, and he was uh, the publisher of that. In conversation, I mentioned that I where I worked and I was thinking of doing a, a couple of essays on where I worked. And he said a diary would be more interesting. <laughs> Well, I already was working on the diary. I'd already been there for several years, but I, I looked at it only as a diary. But that got me to thinking about doing a book as a diary. Yeah, doing a diary and turning it into a book. So that, that's, I spent a long time thinking about it. But by the time I retired, I had probably been working on it as a book for maybe six months. By working on it as a book, I mean thinking about a, lot, a larger audience other than myself for about six months. And then I spent another... But it was three years before it was published. So I spent, say, another year and a half or two years refining it, just polishing it. And it turned out pretty good, I think. Oh, wonderful. Could we have another reading, please? Yeah, I thought I'd read about particular kids or a particular kitty. Okay, when I started working there, I started as what they call an intermittent. So like a substitute, if I was filling in for a teacher, I'd be called a substitute. But we call it intermittent. So I'd fill in for people who were on vacation or were out sick or whatever. I was working full-time. There was a staff of 200 permanent counselors assigned to different cottages. Last night, I worked 11 to 7 in the morning at Whale, the name of the cottage I was in. At about 6 this morning, a young woman called. She gave her name as Sharon Ruckhalder. She said she was calling from Yakima. She asked to speak with Paul or Chip or Joan. She had been a resident in Whale in 1986 and 87, and she wanted to talk with somebody she knew. This uh, entry is dated 1992. She asked if Paul or Joan or Mark were working, apparently recalling the schedule from five years ago. When I told her that no one had come in yet, her voice dropped and I could feel her sadness through the wire. I asked if she was all right. She was not. She had shot up three quarters of a gram of heroin last night. Her body had jerked while she was still shooting. She thought she probably would have died if her body had not jerked. This was her first time with heroin. She's a crack and powder cocaine addict. She weighs less than 100 pounds now, she said. She's five feet, five inches tall, and she weighs 96 pounds. She had an interview at an international house of pancakes, and the manager said he would call, but he hasn't. She's sure it's because she, he could tell by looking at her that she's a crack addict. She might be able to get work as a barmaid, but she doesn't want to be a barmaid again. She used to bring in $50 a night just in tips, but she doesn't want to be a barmaid again. Yakima is a drug seller's heaven, she said. Crack is everywhere. If they recognize you as an addict, dealers will offer it to you anywhere. Just going out for a pack of cigarettes in the store, in the parking lot, everywhere. She had just moved there from Spokane, and the move was one of the worst mistakes of her life. The doctor at the hospital where she was taken for the overdose told her that, in his opinion, it was not too late to save her. He didn't mean only from the heroin, but from crack, too. 
but she knew she had to save herself that nobody else could save her. She's 23 now. She was released from Ash Meadow in 1987 when she was 18. She had her second child while at Ash Meadow. She took the rap for her boyfriend because he had prior convictions. He assaulted someone during a robbery. She took the rap for him. She asked if Paul or Mark had come in yet. I told her I didn't know either of them. She said Mark was short, had a red beard, and looked like Abraham Lincoln. Paul was the kind of guy where you could be throwing furniture around and screaming, and afterward he would say, I hear you, and I love you. She said she doesn't want to be a bad mother, but when she works as a barmaid, she tries to sleep in the morning, and the kids get up, and she's always yelling at them, be quiet. Mommy's trying to sleep. Be quiet. And this is why she doesn't want to work as a barmaid, although now she's so thin, she doesn't think anybody would hire her anyway. She's afraid of dying. The heroin frightened her, and she feels very, very ashamed of how she's neglecting her children. Since she returned from the hospital last night, she's been vomiting up whatever she eats. There's puke all over the house, she said. She lifted weights when she was at Eagle Cottage, when she'd spent three months working on her drug problem. She and some boys would work out in the weight room at the gym while the other kids played basketball. One of the staff said it was inappropriate for her to be working out with the boys in a room by themselves because she was the only girl there. So Paul opened weight training to all of the girls. But Sharon was the only one who wanted to lift weights. As it shook out, she and one boy worked out with weights while the others played basketball. Basketball was big, she said. It still is, I said. Is it? She laughed. I think she was glad that something had remained the same. She wondered again why she had shot up with heroin when cocaine was her drug. It finally occurred to me that she had tried to kill herself. She took the heroin because it was not her drug. At 6.40, Carolyn, one of the regular staff, came in. I wrote out on a bit of scratch paper that I was talking to a potential suicide in Yakima, would you please call a social worker to go over to this woman's house? It did not occur to me that social workers would not be available at six or seven in the morning or that they would not be the people to handle this kind of affair anyway. I asked Sharon if she would mind if I sent a social worker over to talk with her. She said that it would be good, but how would I do that unless I left the phone I was talking to her on? She was afraid of my leaving her even for a minute. I told her another staff, Carolyn, had come in and she would call on another phone while I stayed here. Sharon said she didn't know Carolyn. I asked her to tell, to give me her address. I wrote it down and passed it to Carolyn. We continued talking. Sharon got sick again and excused herself and threw up while I stayed on the line. We had just started talking again when she said someone was at the door. She asked me if I could hear him banging. I said I could and that she should answer it. Only a second had passed when I heard from a distance, hey, it's a cop. Then she was on the phone. You said you were going to send a social worker, but it's a cop. I could hear him pounding on the door and shouting, Mrs. Ruckhauser, are you all right? I'm here to help you. Sharon, I said, I don't know why they sent a cop. I thought they were going to send a social worker. But listen to him. He's only trying to help you. If you don't like him, then don't open the door. All right, I'll listen. I'll be right back, she said. The banging stopped. I heard her talking with the cop. Then she was back on the phone. It's all right. He seems nice. I let him in. I could hear his voice as he came nearer. He seems really nice, she said again. I'm going to go now. Thanks for talking to me or letting me talk to you. She hung up. It was a little past seven now. Another staff had come in and I was able to leave. Before I left, I filled Carolyn in on what had happened before she arrived. When I told her that I had been afraid that Sharon would kill herself, Carolyn said the real danger was that she would kill her children, believing that she was sparing them the suffering that the world would inevitably cause them. Walking out to my car, I saw... Carol Ripito, and stopped to talk with her. I told her about Sharon. Carol remembered her. Paul left Ash Meadow several years ago, she said. She agreed with Carolyn that the greater danger was to Sharon's children.
I went home and went to bed and I did not get out of bed for two days except to use the bathroom and to call in sick for a shift I was scheduled to work. Just really powerful and really, really moving as well. And I know we talked about this just before we started recording and I just wanted to, to talk about it a little bit more again. I was saying I was curious about how the people in the book felt about being written about and you said there were there's actually hundreds of them. So if you could just tell us about some of the ones that you know who know either about the book or who have read it or gotten touch. Yeah, well, of course, I wasn't thinking about it as a book until late, and I, I didn't discuss it at work. So nobody knew I was writing it. I knew I was going to change the name, so I mean, I didn't want to, one, I didn't want a lawsuit. But also, I wanted to give them an the opportunity, if they did read about themselves, they could say, that wasn't me. See, it's got, this is somebody else, different name. One boy, well, one boy did read the book, but he wasn't a boy anymore. He was a he was an adult, and it was because a friend of his gave it to him, thought he'd be interested in it, and he recognized himself in it. it. wasn't that he recognized himself; he recognized an incident where he was the one I was writing about an incident, even though I used a different name. And so um, he wrote me through my publisher. My publisher forwarded forwarded the letter. He wrote me, and uh, we started a correspondence. I assured him it was him because he wanted to be able to brag about, uh, to his. He was in prison, in the adult prison. He wanted to be able to brag to uh, other prisoners that he was in a book. And so by my writing him this letter, acknowledging it, it brought him some status, I think. And we've probably been two or three months since uh, I've written to him last. It's his turn to write, so I'm waiting. We've been writing off and on for 10 years now. When the book came out, it was well-reviewed in this area. And I had a number of phone calls. The calls, most of the calls were from uh, staff from other institutions who I, I may have met one or two of them in meetings or in training, and I may have heard of one or two others, but I didn't really know any of them. I remember one man, he agreed with everything I said, and then he referred to all the kids as sociopaths. Wow. And I, I couldn't figure out how he could agree with everything I said and regard them as sociopaths, because I was real clear at one point in the book that of perhaps the 800 or 1,000 kids that I worked with or knew, maybe one or two I would regard as a sociopath. Mm. And uh, to me, uh, the tell on, on being a sociopath was what I, look, what I looked for was, did the kid have a conscience or not? And there were only one or two, and I wasn't sure about one of them. But everything written was open to interpretation. I mean, what, what could I say? Mm. <laughs> I was critical of one of some people. In it. I, use, I use false names. but. Um, I was critical of one person. There were some incidents where another staff took me to task for having written about, about it. But I felt obligated to do it, to write critically about him. Not the one who called me, but the one who called on behalf of his friend. I felt obligated to do it because it showed, it showed somebody stepping across the boundary repeatedly. He should have stayed inside the borders. And yet he just kept going outside and outside. And uh, on one occasion, he was even uh, decorated for something that went terribly wrong, but he managed to rescue himself at the last minute. He should never have been work working there. And there were most of the staff were fine, other than the book. I mean, to work with, and in my opinion, um, not just working with them, but decent enough people. They were competent. Some went out of their way to be helpful. Since it's an inherently dangerous job, I was always looking for somebody who I thought would cover my back uh, if I needed it. 
and sometimes I was wrong, and but usually I was right. It didn't make any difference whether male or female. We had both uh, genders. It was a matter of character. It was just a matter of personality and character. I worked with a really small woman, just loved working with her. We thought similarly. On one occasion, two boys got into a fight, and a third was trying to join in the fight. And I took that, the third trying to get, Marie was trying to separate the kids who were fighting. I was across the room, and this other boy was running toward them. I took him to the floor and held him in a wrist lock and tossed Marie my second set of my, my handcuffs because she needed two sets. Just threw him across the room, and she caught it. And it, was just, it was just wonderful. It was so smooth. I know to your readers, it probably sounds, I don't know what it was, sounds like. It, it wasn't terribly violent. Nobody got hurt. But to be able to work with somebody who can move so smoothly and who can anticipate what you need is great. On the other hand, same person once left me in the lurch. Uh, this boy, uh, we usually like, if we were going to confront a boy or a girl for that matter, we usually like to have two staff present because then the kid would back down. It wasn't so much at this point, it wasn't so much a matter of confrontation as trying to persuade him, in this case, to go back to his room. He was upset about something. I don't remember what it was. He was a big kid, and uh, I was alone with him in the zone, but other staff could hear what was going on. And I yelled out to the whole college to clear the floor. In other words, all the kids should get to their rooms because I didn't know what was going to happen, and I didn't want any interference. And uh, there was a Julius, there's this other staff, and he's, he and Marie were together in the back, and he was going to uh, help me. and she said, no, I'll do it. And they start arguing about who would do it. And she insisted it should not be Julius. It should be a woman. And this is the last, <laughs> I mean, I could hear this going on while I was trying to persuade this boy to go into his room. And it was the last thing I wanted to hear was an ideological argument while I was faced with real life. <laughs> but I did manage to calm the kid down. And uh, he did go back to his room finally. One thing I had any staff has going at for him is that when a kid is really intensely angry or enraged, it only lasts about 30 seconds and then he gets tired. He can't, he can't sustain the, that emotion for that long. He can still be angry, but he's not angry enough to do something about it. If you can get through the first 30 seconds. So I had that going for me and I didn't have to touch him at all. When I first started there, if there was a confrontation with kids, it was often physical. And so it wasn't anybody was getting hurt, but it just seemed that there should be a better way. And finally, after a few years, maybe I've been there for maybe five years, they started tra uh, training us in uh, ways to diffuse a, a potentially violent situation. Just communication. It's what you say, how you say it, what you do with your body. I remember watching uh, uh, on the outside, watching two cops diffuse a situation using the same, the same techniques I had been trained in. And it was just, it was really beautiful. It was really nice. There were two men about to fight and these cops were intervening. I remember that they managed to separate the men, not physically, just by talking to them. And so one cop would talk to one guy, the other cop talked with the other guy. And I was kept watching this one, what he was doing with his hands. And he kept showing the palms of his hands because that, that indicates that he's not holding any, he's not holding a weapon. And he's, he's obviously got a sidearm, but he, he's, that's on the side, that's in his holster. He's not using it. He's showing, he's got his hands out in front of, in front of him. And I think that matters a lot. The guy, he was trying to get the guy talking, and that helped a lot. The guy had confidence that he wasn't going to get hurt. I think a lot of violence happens because somebody is afraid they're going to get hurt. For sure, in the prison, it's like that. Could we have our final reading, please? 
Okay, this one's kind of rough. It's rough for me to read it, but I think it's important. Stephen and other staff and I had taken some kids to chapel. After services, the congregation was beginning to leave when Lee Buckman from security appeared at the door and told us that the campus was locked down and we were all to remain in the chapel. Everybody returned to their seats and sat down. Rumors of an escape began to spread. Dick Peck, our new chaplain, as ignorant as anyone else as to what was going on, began to sing and asked everyone to sing with him. He got the band, musicians from a church group on the outs, on the outside, playing. Prayers alternated with singing while kids and staff tried to figure out what had happened. Then kids began asking to use the bathroom. Lee was still at the door. I got up and went over to him and told him we were going to have to start giving head calls. We called the bathroom's heads. He agreed, but said the kids would have to be accompanied by a staff. Then I asked him what, what was happening. He told me to keep it to himself, but a girl in Wales had killed herself. Without thinking, I looked over at where the whale contingent was sitting. There were eight or ten girls accompanied by a single staff, Sal Reaver, and he was watching Lee and me. I returned to Swan's area. Swan was a cottage I worked in. I returned to Swan's area and told the kids I would take them two at a time to the head. Stephen asked me what was going on, and I told him I didn't know, but it looked like we were going to be here for a while. I saw Dick coming toward us, and I left Stephen because I didn't want him to hear Dick and me talking. I didn't trust Stephen not to say anything to the kids, and the last thing we needed now was a panic. I caught Dick a few rows away and whispered to him what Lee had told me and said I was going to start giving head calls. Dick nodded and went up front and announced that he would be giving head calls one cottage at a time. I took the first swan kids and then returned with them and took two more. Then one of the staff from another cottage took a couple of his kids. I sneaked a look at Sal. He seemed mostly concerned with keeping his girls calm. They didn't seem especially active, but they were buzzing like everybody else. An hour had passed from the time chapel was to have ended when Lee went to the front and told us they were ready to start releasing us to return to our units. They would release one cottage at a time in just a moment. He motioned Dick and me to him. He asked Dick to take charge of releasing the cottages and asked me if I would mind if he held Swan back until all the others but Whale had gone. I thought he wanted me to do this because I already knew what had happened. I agreed. The other cottages were called out, and then Swan was. I sneaked another look at Sal. He knew something was wrong and that, it, and that it affected his cottage. I could see it on his face, something worse than anxiety, but not quite horror. On the way back to Swan, we saw two ambulances parked in front of Whale. One left as we watched and moved slowly toward the main road. Kids wondered aloud what had happened, and one of them asked me if there had been a suicide. I said I didn't know. At the cottage, Fran told me there had been a suicide at Whale and we needed to get the kids locked down. I said I knew. We locked the kids in their rooms, and I left. My shift had ended a half hour earlier. In Seattle, I stopped at the Barnes & Noble at University Village. I think I just wanted to be around people and in a well-lighted place. But I bought a remaindered copy of The Violence of Our Lives, Interviews with American Murderers. The cashier seemed interested in the book, and I started rambling. Suicide tonight. Worst thing that could happen. Some of the kids I work with have killed people, killed themselves. The clerk turned away from me, of course. I hadn't realized how distraught I was until I heard myself babbling. The kids haven't been told yet. Tomorrow, I suppose. Jerry, it's such a powerful book and so many stories that, that I think we need to read about because sometimes we forget the people are people. And where can we buy Paranoia and Heartbreak 15 Years in a Juvenile Facility? Well, Amazon has it. A wholesaler in the, the UK, I can't remember their name, but they had it. They were distributing it to the trade stores, but that was some time ago. I, 
your best bet would, would be to look for it online. Wonderful. Well, Jerry, thank you so much for being my guest, for reading to us and spending time. I really appreciate you being on. Well, thank you. I appreciate having this opportunity to talk with you.